I am probably going to need Tom's help. No, can't have it. <laughs> we have a Tom here purely for color commentary. No audiovisual support will be provided. Uh, and I don't even know why my camera's not going. I think I'm. I think I'm getting there. Ooh, got it. Don't ask wow. me how. Okay. Yeah, I'm in the dungeon down here. Not the real dungeon, the like fake dungeon, because I actually have a dungeon dungeon. But anyway. Elaborate. <laughs> There's this unfinished part of my basement that the previous owner's kids, I guess, sprayed painted Doc's dungeon in there. So it's an actual dungeon, I guess. And I'm just in the basement. <laughs> and you haven't place. reclaimed that space. You're like, you know what? I kind of like it. It's got an artistic uh, appeal. Uh, where's, where's Audio Hijack? Also, what a scary name for a program. <laughs> there we go. Naming things. Turns out it's hard. Maybe that should go on our list of things to talk about today. <laughs> I don't actually have any answers on that one, so. It's just a problem. There's no solutions to it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Herman Velasco, developer here in our Boston studio. How's it going, Herman? Good, good, good. How are you doing, Chris? I guess I, I said that you're a developer here physically in our Boston office, or that's not exactly true. You are currently in your basement, the non-dungeon half of your basement, <laughs> the less dungeon-y half. Correct, correct, yeah. <laughs> but you are coming to us via the magic of the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm still attached to the Boston office. I, I don't Absolutely, mind it yes. if you say I'm part of the Boston studio. Oh, I, I very much, I'm very happy that you are still considered within the sphere. I just didn't want people on the internet listening to this radio show to think that I was implying you were physically present here. Fair. I don't know why I feel the need to be so specific. <laughs> I guess it's because I fight computers for a living and try and convince them of things, and it makes me overly pedantic. That is the thing I've observed. Our lunchtime conversations at ThoughtBot devolve into just the deepest pedantry. Pretty sure it's because we just yell at computers all day. I've wondered often if that's just from the Boston office or if that happens in other offices as well. The specific one of is a hot dog a sandwich is <laughs> uniform across all the offices. And granted, that's a bigger question that like has existed in philosophy for many years and the idea of taxonomy and whatnot. But I have I think I've heard from each of the offices that they've had similar things. But maybe Boston is extra uh, on that <laughs> front. I, yeah. I wonder if people who like moved from the Boston offices to other offices or planted other offices sort of started that. Mm, yeah, maybe not. it's definitely possible. Part, part of the culture that gets uh, seasoned into each new <laughs> office that we open. Well, Herman, I have a fun thing that we're going to do live on the radio. Nice. I'm going to close a pull request that updates the date that I reference on my personal website about how long I've been at ThoughtBot. As of Monday, it will be six years for me. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Mildly excited. Six is kind of a random number, but it is nice to think about all the time that I've spent here and um, also to have magic things in the internet that do this. So this is a pull request that's opened against a repo that Netlify is running behind the scenes and compiling a static site and just all sorts of nifty little technologies in there. This is your personal website? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. So c2me.com because some real estate agent down in Florida has chrisTumi.com. <laughs> I think he forwards it on to like a separate real estate thing. So it doesn't even use it, but wow. such is life, you know? You could buy it for you know a few thousand probably. <laughs> I think like he uses it actively for his business. So I'm pretty sure it isn't one of those like, it's not a domain squatting situation, but yeah, but yeah I will say, I, I don't know if you've spent any time with Netlify. I haven't actually. My personal GitHub page is just, sorry, it's a GitHub page. That's mm -hmm. what it is. <laughs> I've found it to be that, but with a couple of extra nice things, like they have automatic SSL and they have custom domains and mm. they just have all the stuff that it's Heroku, but for static sites. And I'm also a strong believer in static sites as an approach to building things on the web Yeah. in contrast to then Heroku being a way to get dynamic sites up there. But yeah, 
That's awesome. Hey, but congrats. Over oh, half you. a decade is nice, yeah. especially in tech. Let's see if it's actually live now. It's got to go through like a build thing. I'll, I'll keep reloading the page <laughs> in the background and we can see. It's like live coding in a talk. <laughs> Something's going to happen. I've, I've merged the pull request now, but that's kicking off a build that will then eventually get deployed as long as the build succeeds. And uh, I do like that it has all of that automation built into it, but now I'm just that person sitting there reloading a web page. <laughs> Herman, today I wanted to invite you back on the bike shed to chat with me. And truly in the spirit of the name of this show, I wanted us to get into some of the weeds. I wanted to talk about some of the uh, more subtle topics that um, weirdly, I think you and I both have seen some of these topics getting talked about a bunch more on Twitter of late. So we thought we would lean into them. So the first of the bike shed level topics that we're going to dig into today is duplication. So a lot of folks have been talking about duplication and what I've historically seen is we want to avoid duplication basically at all costs. And what we're seeing more of is sort of the reverse argument of like, actually, a little bit of duplication is probably fine. And the, the hoops that we're jumping through to avoid it are less than fine. Yeah, you know, I have seen some stuff online about this, and I think many times we're not defining terms quite correctly, or at least, like, I think I've seen people use dry, like, everything dry. Like, if the code looks the same, you just have to dry it out. It has to be in a single place. Right. And just to clarify, dry there is the acronym, don't repeat yourself. Yeah. Where does it come from? And I have no idea. I, I it's, all, it's, it's one of those that's just sort of existed in the world for me for a while. Um, we can look up and Actually, see if there's I think a it's from Pragmatic Programmer. Oh, that could definitely be true. Yeah, I think that's... That I is mean, a source for a lot of the things that I say and think of as just core truth in the world of software development. Yeah, I think the concept, you know, expressed in other places, but that's where I think they coin it as dry, like don't repeat mm -hmm. yourself. I, I think what I'm seeing online, at least, is maybe a backlash against people trying to dry things that are just like structural duplication. I don't know the correct way to express it, but it's not about keeping some piece of knowledge in your domain in a single place but you're just drawing two things that look the same. So like mm -hmm. a sort of contrived example, but I've actually seen it done, is where someone tries to dry up controller responses in Rails or in Phoenix. They look the same across many actions because maybe you're creating and you're checking a successful state or a failure state. But trying to dry that out, just the, the fact that you have to check a successful state and a failure state into like a, a shared, I've seen it done in a shared controller, for example. A shared, like a common controller that two different controllers then inherit from? Yeah. And it's in the effort of drying up that like, hey, we need to check whether this returns successful or not. And I'm not sure that that kind of drying makes sense. If you're talking about domain knowledge, you want to have a single place where that piece of knowledge is represented in your system. Mm -hmm. The way I like to think about it is, is there a world in which I can see my system being subtly wrong if I update one of the places that this information is and not the other? Yeah, yeah, that's Whereas, really like, if I have two controllers that look the same currently, but then down the road, one of them needs to change the behavior, then it's probably fine for them to vary independently. And so that's definitely a case where I'd be like, the duplication there is perfectly fine. But it is one of those very subtle edges that is hard to pin down. I think one of the ones that I've seen and one of the ones that I think we push back on as ThoughtBot developers a lot is drying up in tests. So lots and lots and lots of extraction from tests. And then unfortunately, I think we would say, unfortunately, there are helpers that have been put into the world of like RSpec and things like that, that provide unique DSLs for deduplication that have subtle mechanics and behavior and things like that. Right. And to like put a name on these things, you're talking things like defining lets or 
before mm-hmm. each or unfortunately before all or stuff like that, right? <laughs> yes, and all the more so when you start to nest those together. Oh, yeah. So you have lets that are dependent on other lets. Then you have a before that expects that the let is defined in a certain way. And then you get mystery guess and you get behavior that is hard to understand. And the, the thing that sort of surprises me about that one is I do try and deduplicate and test, but I do it by extracting a method. Yes. And so an object that will exist within the context of a test, I'm fine with that being returned by a method and that method doing a bunch of things, creating a couple of objects, connecting them in a certain way, and then returning me the thing. But I want to make sure that it's explicit how that happens. So it's not that I'm opposed to deduplication in a test. It's just I think there's ways to do it that are explicit versus implicit in that case. Yeah, I mean, I think you sort of have to balance these concepts together, right? You might be trying to dry it up by like removing things and putting them in a let block. But I think at that, at that point, you're sort of introducing mystery guests, right, into your test. Yep. You're like, where is this user coming from? And like you said, if they're nested, you might be using a let defined within a context, which is overriding the let defined at the top of the file. So like it gets super confusing. But yeah, I usually agree with you. Like if there is common setup in terms of creating data for the test, it's helpful if you have them in a method or in a function that can generate that because you're like you're right you're calling it from the test so mm-hmm. it's explicit where that data is coming from when you look at a single test which should be i think atomic in in my perspective i think an, another litmus test that i use for this is if i'm extracting some common set of lines of code or or concepts from a few different places and i want to extract them deduplicate them dry that whole thing up do I have a name for the thing that I've extracted? Because I love extraction for the purpose of naming, for introducing like this sequence of things, I can just call that onboarding. And now I've hidden away all the murky details of what onboarding means, but I have this name that represents all of those concepts. And occasionally I'll see situations where there's very complex code that's doing highly dynamic things that are somewhat difficult to follow, and there's not even necessarily a a good name for it. Mm -hmm. And it gets named like build thing for foo and bar or some name that's just sort of cobbling together a bunch of different ideas. And if I struggle to come up with a name, then to me that's a sign that like I probably shouldn't be extracting this because it's not a common, it's what you're describing, like structural duplication. They look the same, but in fact they are different concepts in different contexts. Yeah, 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 exactly. And something that might be helpful there, I think in terms of the naming is, are you naming something consistent with your domain? It is almost by definition the fact that you're, you're defining a domain concept, like onboarding. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're extracting that and that's what it's representing, then I think that's a helpful guide. There was a tweet that I saw that now I'm going to have to play that game of trying to chase it down on the internet so I can put it into the show notes. But <laughs> I'll try and restate now roughly what it said. It was basically going against the idea that duplication is bad at all and actually highlighting cases where duplication is good and writing something in two different places and then having that cross-checked can actually be super useful. And so one of the examples that they provided was in type systems. So often we have functions and there's type inference, say in an Elm application, Mm -hmm. the type system is actually incredibly smart and can trace through from very minimal information and from static values in the program what's going on. And you don't actually need to provide the type annotation for most functions, but we do, and we get the benefit because the compiler is actually then going to spot check it. So it ends up being this form of documentation that is duplicated, but is verified duplication. Uh, Are you saying it's duplicated in the sense of the the, the function name and the type signature? Or is it duplicated? So the function definition implicitly has those types, and the type inference of the compiler can figure that out. So we don't need to write the type annotation for the function. But we Mm. do because it acts as good documentation and as a constraint 
that this thing is taking what we expect. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't think that so much as duplication as just a feature of the language, maybe like mm -hmm. an Elm. Uh, I guess you're right with type inference, you wouldn't necessarily have to write it. So what is the shape of this function is defined by the definition. And then we add this annotation that's saying a similar thing. I agree with you. I hadn't thought about this in, in that way at all. And when I read it, I was like, huh, that's interesting. And there was a, a corollary that they made to documentation and that if there were a way that we could better couple those together, like having runnable examples within documentation that were spot checked against the code and that those two were linked together and sort of like whenever builds going out that we spot check those, that actually becomes a really interesting constraint. Like our tests and documentation then becomes sort of an interesting way of constraining the system. Would they be maybe considered more of the first client to use your code? I know tests can be considered mm -hmm. that way, right? Like instead yeah. of you're not really duplicating, it's really like your first client using your code yeah. essentially. Yeah, I think test is actually probably a, a poor example because it, it is more usage as opposed to a duplication of the ideas that are in there. It's an interesting, I guess with, with something like Elm though, you have the safety that you don't have the risk of changing one and the other one failing silently because mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a problem with duplication, right. right? Like you change one and you in one place, but you don't change the same thing in the other place. And now you have two mm -hmm. different results. With a type definition in Elm, if you change one and not the other, the compiler will inform you promptly of it. So maybe that's what minimizes that risk. And so it's not, yeah. really, not really a concern. Yeah, I think like, as I, I said earlier, that's sort of my fundamental check of, am I concerned about this duplication? And the answer comes from whether or not I can imagine the situation where there'll be divergence in the two different definitions of the thing. And I think like if we have something that's with the compiler, it's going to be spot checking those two different references to the same function, then we're fine. That's def like it's actually part of how we ensure that our, our program is doing the right thing. But something that I haven't spent a lot of time with historically, but I've been playing with more lately is code generation. And I always sort of thought of that as a bad thing, particularly probably coming from having spent a lot of my time in Rails. Rails has magic methods that behind the scenes are generating code, but they're generating it at runtime right. and dynamically. And so as I look at a lot of like has many foo through bar, that's actually an incredibly complex bit of code that that's implying that we don't have to write, but that's not generated. It doesn't live in our application. It's generated at runtime. It defines a ton of methods. It builds up a bunch of things. And what I've been doing more lately is actual ahead of time code generation. So a specific example would be given a GraphQL client, I run some code generation tools that reflect on the schema and the queries and generate the associated TypeScript or whatever types. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually spitting out TypeScript code or TypeScript interfaces or things like that. But it's doing that as part of sort of a build step. And that code is very much duplicated. It's a combination of the schema and the query, but this is all knowable. Like in a Rails world, we probably would be doing runtime generation of that sort of stuff. But by generating it ahead of time, we get that into the compile lifecycle. And so it's there's Is the code duplicated once the compiler has injected the code? Or is it duplicated in that you're having to call that many times? In my mind, the duplication exists in the generated code that's dumped into my application. Right. And so I need to, like, if I were to change my GraphQL query, I need to rerun the code generation in order for those generated values to be correct. But right. I can hook that into CI and I can have confidence that that will happen and that my system will be constrained in that way. So I've, I've become very okay with that. Interesting. Okay, so is this a case, though, where the code generation still lives in a single place? So there's no duplication in the fact that, of how it generates the code. Or am I completely missing it here? 
I'm not sure. <laughs> or are you talking about like there's duplication between the fact that you're generating these on compiled time for the client and you're sort of duplicating what is already defined in the server? I think it's that the information that gets generated, it is entirely possible to infer it from the existing code. And that's exactly what happens. So the schema defines the possible types for my GraphQL system. My query says what I'm selecting from that. And then the implied type of the returned value, that's knowable. It's implicit in those the combination of those two things. But I use the code generation to then make that explicit to generate the TypeScript interface, which then lives in a file within my repository. But again, that litmus test of if I change something in one place, will it get out of sync? In this case, yes, it, it would if I don't rerun code generation. Got it. Interesting. So you need CI to enforce it's not getting out of sync. Right. I guess to provide a counterexample, in the world of Rails, we don't specify column values. We don't specify the fields from the database that right. each table is backed by. Mm -hmm. Those are implicitly reflected off of the schema. I want to say it's the db slash schema.rb, and it reflects on that and goes from there. I'm actually not even sure how Rails does it, but it generates a whole heck ton of methods for us. Right, right, right. And that's runtime code generation. So it's not possible for it to get out of sync. Again, though, I guess assuming that your schema.rb, which is a generated duplicated file, that thing's sort of a cached value of all of your migrations being run. Right, yeah, yeah. In theory, if you were to rerun your migrations, you should get out the same schema.rb, which hilariously is often not the case, but that's a, that's a side topic here. But Rails takes the approach of not doing code generation in general and doing runtime, dynamic module, and method definition. What you brought about is interesting. I'm not sure that, again, it's, it's not necessarily about simply reducing duplication just for the sake mm -hmm. of reducing it, but rather because of the risk it introduces into the code base. Right. And so if you have a way to catch it, mm -hmm. like CI, maybe that's yeah, I think historically I would have been much more resistant to this sort of thing, but I found the benefits to outweigh the costs, and particularly if we can instrument CI and tests and things in such a way that I can have the confidence that things will not get out of sync, then yeah, let's, let's have a bit of duplication. Let's say things in more than one place, or let's take what was an inferable concept and make it explicit know that I have to maintain that and I have to keep that up to date, but know that I have mechanisms for that. And more broadly, I think like just the theme that we're looking at here is duplication has historically been frowned upon very strongly and with a pretty hard line. And I like that the conversation is starting to transition to, well, I don't know, there are no absolutes. And this is one that we might have gone. The pendulum had swung a little bit too far in the one direction. And now I think we're having a meaningful correction back to the middle. Yeah. Another correction I've seen in this discussion is that Sort of the notion, I think Sandy Metz says this, and I shouldn't attribute it to her if she hasn't said it, but I'm pretty sure it's in Pooter, that book, that sometimes it's better to have duplication than the wrong abstraction. There's definitely a quote like that. I'm pretty sure it is Sandy Metz, uh, or I definitely attribute that idea to her. And I think it's a fantastic idea. And I think one that, again, I've, I've seen that starting to enter the conversation much more. Like I'll see a lot of pull request comments that are, oh, it looks like this concept is repeated in more than one place. Can you remove this, you know, take away the duplication and someone will respond with, well, we're not sure the idea hasn't settled yet. Mm. So it's probably, we'd prefer to wait until the third. I often see the number three is also a critical thing of don't yeah. try and fix duplication when it's two. At a minimum, expect to have three before you start to remove duplication. Yeah. And I think I found that too in an experience. When you're trying to create an abstraction, if you have two use cases, it's for some reason a lot harder to create the right abstraction than if you have mm -hmm. three. There's some magical number that maybe you can... I mean, can... two points make a line. Three points make a 
plane and a plane has a lot more stuff on it yeah, yeah. <laughs> like mathematically speaking it, it holds up in my mind that it like you've triangulated now which is such a richer set of imp- i mean they might also all three points might be collinear and then you still have a line but whatever <laughs> weird going, math diatribe that's yeah. fine you're going deep with that yeah but i I think that's a that's a helpful guide something that i always wonder though is like how do you know if it's the third like the person introducing the third thing the third repetition might not know they're introducing the third repetition right yeah i mean i agree and i think broadly these sort of subtle aspects of like when is it okay duplication and when is it not when even if you have three things that look the same should you actually leave them at rest as separate duplicated quote-unquote instances and unfortunately i think that's one of the things that sort of falls to experience and to we have to figure it out and that's that's why we're still here doing this job i guess but I, I never like that as an answer, although I think so many things, if we're being honest, fall into that space of we got to make some choices sometimes. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, you might have more context, right? We don't make these choices in a vacuum. So it's important to understand, you know, maybe you don't create the wrong abstraction right now because you know something's, even though it's dangerous to, to say something is coming down the pipeline, you might know that something might really, like the next feature you're working on is going to have the next element of this or something like that. So. Yeah. I have noticed actually a, a pretty consistent cultural theme at ThoughtBot is the idea of often when you're building a system, you'll build out a simple iteration of, okay, we need to accept this sort of input, start in the database, render it back. And someone on the team will say, oh, but we're pretty sure like in two months, we're definitely going to be building it out. It needs to be this more complex version. It needs to have WebSockets. <laughs> so we should just do WebSockets now. And somewhat uniformly, I've seen when working with other ThoughtBotters, is a strong resistance to that kind of idea of, well, okay, but we can do that when we get there. And let's make sure we're not doing anything that would prevent it now, but let's definitely not build towards that idea at this point. Yeah. And I would, as you have said, it's probably pretty prevalent among ThoughtBotters. So I think I totally agree with that. I think when the time comes, you'll have more information and you will be able to create the right abstraction or be able to implement it in the right way. Uh, Saying something's coming down the pipeline and guessing at what it might be is always uh, yeah, sort of a dangerous game to play because you're just making guesses. They might be educated, but... I think one of the things that's interesting is probably a, a more generalized form of that view is the idea that we refer to it as software development, like we're just building the thing, we're just putting the next brick in line and the next brick in line. But in reality, it's software discovery and like product design sprints and a lot of the iterative workflow and the getting feedback and putting it in front of real users and all of those speak to the core of that idea that like we actually don't know what we're building even when we're almost certain we know what we're building we're still not like oh it's a feature for feature rewrite that's actually another thing that we push back on very strongly we're like uh are we sure what if we were to figure out the minimum viable set of things that people are definitely currently using and then we'll add on later as it makes sense but that idea that we're just laying down code to connect up the pieces tends to not be true. And so what you just said of in the future, we'll have more information. Like we're working with the least information we will ever have at this point in time. Right. And that's always true. Unfortunately, like it never gets better. We have more information, but we still have the now, like we will have more in the future always. And so trying to just make the thing that will work now and solve the needs that we have, it is counterintuitive because ideally you want to build the thing that is not going to require any fixing or adjusting but that doesn't seem to be real as far as we can tell yeah and i think it's we want to build things that are able to change doesn't necessarily mean we should build them anticipating what change is coming down but just Mm -hmm. building them so that we can change them later which that's why tests play such a big part because it allows me to refactor restructure things in a safe manner so similarly type systems that's uh like refactoring an elm is a dream 
Yeah, it's, it's just crazy. Nice. You just go in there and grab anything and just like, you're no longer a string. You're a list of strings. Oh, let's go chase that down. Absolutely love that experience of refactoring under compilers and that belief that software will change. It will need to change and being able to undertake that change is the core of our work is what keeps pushing me towards strongly typed systems like that. Well, I think that's a good summary of duplication. I think we should move on to something that we have uh, more, I would say, even fixed opinions on. And this would be the idea of code comments. Comments in our code. This is another one that I've started to see some conversations on Twitter a little bit more of, yeah, no, comments are great. No, I think comments are important. And I personally have not found a lot of value in comments historically. So I will, I will now just ask you the pointed question, Herman. Can you tell me of a time that there was a comment in code and that it was very beneficial to you? And I may sound like I'm asking that in a way like, obviously, there never was. I don't believe that. I think there are definitely use cases, but I'm struggling to come up with a time where I was like, that comment really helped me out today and was great. And I'm wondering if you do have an example like that. When I was working in implementation of Ethereum, and not to talk about Ethereum here because I'm it's fine. Someone called anyway. us out on Twitter today for saying we're a crypto <laughs> podcast now. So just lean into it. I feel like we haven't talked about it. anyway. But it was in, in this project where we were trying to follow a specification, essentially, mm-hmm. called the yellow paper. There were some comments that were helpful because they referred to this function is essentially the implementation of this function in the yellow paper. So you could compare notes. That was, I think, more documentation than code comments. And I sort of make a distinction between those and we can maybe get into what those mean. But two, those comments, though they were helpful, they were also always out of date. The yellow paper mm. would change. And so the functions weren't actually referring to the right functions. So I, had to, <laughs> so I actually had to go and dig them up. But it was like fairly close. I'm actually going to redact my earlier statement that I don't have an example. I do have one that I can think of. And it was a comment I wrote. It's, I think, one of the very few code comments that I've written in my career. But it was, I had run into an actual bug in the Ruby language and the version of MRI that I was working with. And I had to change my code in a way that was very counterintuitive. I had to break up a method that just didn't want to be broken up, just was sort of arbitrary. Like, all right, we're just splitting it in half, even though it's doing one thing. Mm. I just split it in half because I had exceeded some weird magic number of arguments that wasn't supposed to be a feature of the language, but was. I remember this. Okay, yeah, yeah. And so I basically wrote an apology letter and link to the bug tracker for that. But as I say this, like it almost certainly... They've probably upgraded that application at this point, the version of Ruby that they're using. Thus, that bug is no longer present in their runtime. And thus, that comment is now a lie. Right. So although in that case, that's one of the rare cases where it's like, I must write a comment here. I'm pretty sure it's a lie now. I think oftentimes when we say don't write code comments, I think there's two things we would usually say. One is write self-commenting code, the Mm -hmm. function names, the module names, the class names make them such that they express the intent clearly without having to write a comment. Because usually, I think those are the comments that are the easiest to remove when people are writing like a super long method or Mm -hmm. function. And in several of the steps, they have like intermediate comments. Like this is doing that thing. And I always say like, hey, what do you think about extracting that to a private function with that name or private method with that name? And usually that just reads better in that kind of scenario. The problem with code comments like you're suggesting is that they get out of sync, right? At some point in time, either the code changes, like oftentimes people will change the code and not even update the comment because I think it's not something we're trained to do. It's not part of our behavior to look at the comment and update it. So it'd be nice if there were a way to write comments that had the context of a particular point in time. If only. Yeah. If, like, if only there were a way. I, I don't. Oh, wait, are you making a joke or not? Yeah. 
if we could only get that in some sort of version control type thing. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. I couldn't tell if you were making the joke or not. <laughs> Too subtle. That's where I find like, when I want to write a comment, I usually write really detailed explanations in commits. Because I find that that carries the context through time, right? So at a particular right. point in time, I can go uh, check it and see why someone did a particular thing. So I think what you're highlighting there is the distinction between code comments that are explaining the what. And in those cases, our strong recommendation would be, could we just extract that and give it a name that carries that what? But now that name is in code and much less likely to get out of sync. Right. Not guaranteed. Definitely there are times where people change the implementation of a method and forget to change the name and suddenly the method name's a lie. But it's, I would say, drastically less common. And then the other option of the why. In my case, the why of that weird method split up that I did was because there was a bug in Ruby that probably belonged in a commit message. I've definitely put it in the commit message to be clear, everyone on the internet, don't worry. <laughs> uh, but I also put it in the code and I think it, the version in the code is now alive, but the version in the commit message, due to the immutable nature of Git, it's tied to that point in time. And the Ruby version file is also committed at that same level and therefore it's definitively true. Yeah, and I think also what's helpful about that in that particular scenario is that if someone goes in there and says, oh, there's this comment, is this still true? they could check Git history and see your comment and say, oh, mm -hmm. well, this happened at this point. I see we've upgraded Ruby versions. This must no longer, you know, it, it yep. provides that sort of ability to check whether the comment's true and whether it's needed anymore or whether it's no longer relevant. And to uh, highlight some particular resources on this, you've written, I think, at least two blog posts, one on authoring commit messages and telling a good story in those. I'm pretty sure that's true. If not, there's definitely <laughs> some things on the Giant Robots blog that I can point to. Additionally, you've written one on how to navigate the Git history to make that information more accessible. You know, given you're on a line, how do you get to that story that someone wrote, ideally in a commit message? And so those are great resources that we will definitely point the folks to. Yeah, the, one, the second one you're referring to, I find that people don't often write good commit messages because they don't use Git blame. Mm. It's an unfortunate naming. Maybe should be called Git context or something like that. I know people sometimes... Git praise, Git praise. is a thing. I've heard a lot of folks will alias it to praise. Yeah, that works for me. Context is probably a little more accurate. Blame is, if we're being honest, probably accurate. Uh, <laughs> but I often, I'm sure you've had the experience of blaming some code and you are the author. It's definitely happened. It's also, yeah. it's also definitely been the case where I just want to see who wrote this because I'm so happy that <laughs> like, oh, this is great. Who wrote this? And sometimes it's Joel. <laughs> no, that, Good work, that was, Joel. Yeah, I just point him out because uh, that happened to me in a few projects ago. But yeah, it's uh, being able to access git blame, git context, git praise, whatever you want to alias it to, easily, I think, is what allows you to understand the value of good mm -hmm. git commits, at least from my perspective, because that's when I really started focusing on writing good commit messages is because I keep checking that. So when I check it and there's like a one-line commit and there's no context for you know several changes or if it's just a series of squash commits, it's just hard to read that and I lose the context. Yeah, and I, I love the approach that you took there of, I've definitely had the same experience where I'm suggesting to someone that they elaborate in a commit message and I'm like, why? No one ever reads them. And I'm like, oh, I read them all the time. I'm surprised <laughs> that that's the thing that you're saying. And I, I like that you took it the next step to actually provide some help in that and guidance on how, like, literally how to do that. Because without that, I, I would agree. Then it's just, I don't know, that's just the noise that I write into the commit message that maybe someone will look at, but really they only look at the first line or whatever. Right. When in fact, you can have a much richer conversation. I mean, that then gets into weird things of squashing commits and what size your commits should be. I don't think that's a level of... Uh, yeah. yeah maybe, <laughs> I don't know that we need to get into that bike shedding today, but... Yeah, yeah. 
we can go back to comments since we're diverging. But I, I will say there are a couple of examples, I think, where comments are probably the best option, and specifically those come around documentation. So like doing inline documentation of methods and functions within more of a library. Mm. Um, this comes up a little bit less in, I'd say, our day-to-day works. I don't do this on application code, but if I'm building an open source project or a library or, or a framework or things like that where people will be consuming it, then providing that documentation is all the more important. And writing inline docs right above a method, I think, is a useful version. But yeah, yeah, yeah especially if your language has first class documentation, I think that is really, really useful. Can you describe what you mean by that? Yeah, so like Elixir, I would say, has first class documentation. What I mean by that is if you have a, an open source library, when you publish it, it'll grab any documents tagged with doc or module doc, or sorry, any modules, right? There's special tags for them, but it'll generate. Uh, documentation for you and so any package that you find in elixir if you go online it should have some documentation so long as someone put a doc tag above the function name or at the top of the module and so it, it has that and it also has doc tests and it's something we could talk about but essentially it's if you write examples in your documentation I believe it runs them in an IEX session, sort of like a REPL type thing. Mm-hmm. And it just makes sure that your your examples don't fail. So they're like in line with how your code actually works currently. Is that like a separate command or is that something that would be, you'd probably have to integrate that into CI as opposed to like mix test won't by default do it actually that? runs them with your tests. Okay. So if you run mix test, then all of those will be included. Yeah. You have to put That's a nice. special uh, declaration in your test file. I forget what it is. Use doc test or something. It makes for documentation to be easy and it also makes it so that it becomes the entry point for the community. You know, when you want to use a library, you just go to the docs because most packages have docs because it's an easy thing to add and it's built in. I know Python has a similar, if not exactly the same sort of functionality with having doc tests, I think is what they call it as well. And it seems like a, a nice feature. I tend to write less library code and things like that where I think this is all the more useful, but... I think it's a novel feature and an example where comments might actually, especially it's got that validation step built in. So there's less likelihood of the comments going out of date based on changing a method, but not remembering to change the associated documentation and comments there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it helps with with that. I also think, as I was thinking about this, like you're saying, libraries make a lot more sense to have this. And again, this is sort of where I was saying maybe documentation is different from code comments in this sense where libraries provide documentation because I think that's the first entry point for anybody consuming the library Mm -hmm. as opposed to me writing a code comment on a project that I've been working on with several other people for many, many years that's not exposed to the outside world. At that point, it's not like someone's going to wonder why this function works the way it does and try to find a comment because that's not the first place they're looking at. They'll probably look at what I did for the implementation. Whereas if you're trying to use a new library, you'd go through the docs. And that all makes sense. I do wonder, though, if this is a story we're telling ourselves. Like, would our world be slightly better? Particularly, I have heard references to, like, at the top of a class, a Ruby class, just a quick sentence as to why this thing exists. What's the problem that it's solving? I've always resisted it for the reasons that we've talked about. But I do wonder, is this an example where the pendulum has swung too far in the one direction? Like, our particular interpretation of probably never a good reason to write comments. Is that too extreme? I don't know. I'm still of that opinion, but I wonder. I'm willing to be wrong. I like being wrong. Then I learn something. Yeah, that's true. I think in Elixir, I may have, because documentation is such first class, I may have written some mm-hmm. module comments when it's a particularly... I like how you're saying that almost apologetically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am. No, we're open to all ideas here on the bike shed. Strong opinions, loosely held type thing. Yeah, I mean, I think, like you were saying before, like in programming, usually there's no absolutes. Like, mm-hmm. 
much like in life. Yeah, there are scenarios where a judgment call might make sense to add a, a comment for the for a module or for a class. I still think we always run into the issue of it becoming stale. Yeah, the cocktail of solid names, as good of a name as I can make, extracting small functions, and type annotations is the one that more and more I'm believing in, because that provides such an interesting additional layer to the conversation and to the essentially documentation of something. So that's that's where I have sort of settled. But yeah, subtle, subtle things, subtle topics all around. For type annotations, so long as the compiler checks them, I would say. Oh, yeah. Because I think what that mean otherwise. <laughs> Well, I think there are places where you can add type annotations. I think in Elixir, sometimes people add type specs and they don't run them through Dialyzer. And I think at that point, they sort of become duplication that is not checked so they can get out of sync. Like a documentation version of type annotations. And if they're not being checked, then yes, they're potentially worse than not having them at all. Yeah, I have, in fact, found them misleading in several occasions where Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is taking a different argument. This is actually not correct. So long as something else can check it, I think. Ideally a computer, because they're so much better at that sort of checking than I am and that humans are. Yeah, something else needs to be an automated thing. Make the computer do the work, not me. That work. There's other work that I like to do. I like to think big. I'm a big picture guy. That's what I do. (laughs) Let the computer do the the writing, yeah. Yeah, let it do the math. Let it it keep the ledger and make sure I'm not lying anywhere. But uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, is there anything else you want to cover? I feel like we've bounced around between some nice bike sheddy topics there. I think that was, that's been good. I'm always thankful to be here in the bike shed. Well, we enjoy having you on. Herman, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Chris. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.